Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here today. And we pray simply this, that your spirit would come, that he would minister to your people by your word for your glory and for our good. God, we pray that uh, this would be a day truly where your name would be lifted higher. And uh, we want to be a part of that. So we thank you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began our new series in 1 Peter entitled Exiles. And the title was taken from the first verse of the book, which says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And we saw that Peter was writing to Christians who had been part of this colonization, this uh, dispersion, uh, Christians living in Rome or that region sent now to Asia Minor, and they are there uh, living as foreigners, essentially, living as exiles, geopolitical exiles. And what Peter does is he draws from their geopolitical situation spiritual truth and application as they dealt with uh, the feelings of alienation and ostracization from people that saw them as part of the conquering army, people that weren't from there. And uh, so, uh, so much that we're going to see in this letter. Last week was our, was our introduction, and we saw that uh, what exiles want more than anything is they want a change of location. They think to themselves, what really needs to happen is I need to be somewhere else. And if I was somewhere else, then I would be happy. Then I would feel like I belong. And we see that what Peter is wanting them to realize is that we want to change our location. God wants to change who we are. And that is inward. And that's the work of the Spirit. That's the work of the Gospel. That's a part of changing us. Now, what might exiles need to know? Think about this with me for a moment. What do they need to know? There they are living in a land of uncertainty, living in a place where they don't you know, you think of what people experience when they move into a new area. They need a new doctor. They need a new, where do I get my groceries? How do I find my way around? All the things that are sort of new and different and uncertain. That is compounded in the experience of moving in the first century to a whole new region. And uh, there they are. And everything is uncertain. Nothing feels normal. Everything's sort of weird. What do they need to know spiritually? Well, they need to know that there is a day coming when they will not be exiles anymore and where they will feel welcomed and they will feel like they belong. And that's what Peter now uh, moves to in uh, pastoring this group of people. He wants them to realize that they will not always be exiles. It will not always be like it is. There's coming a day when it will be very much different. And our, our text in our sermon today is uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. And uh, today is a day where I get to preach at uh, Crown Point and at Cedar Lake. And uh, we do this with the use of technology. So, and uh, hopefully a fast commute. So uh, that's where we're going today. That's where I'm going today. But uh, our text today is verses 3 through 5. So please listen as I read from God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father... Of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept 
in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First Peter, if you ask most people what First Peter is about, it's about remaining faithful in suffering and in persecution. And I just want to note to you that a letter that begins, a letter that is about suffering, begins with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that seems out of place, except for when you view your suffering from a Christian perspective. It sounds to me like Job, the famous book on suffering. Job, who endured all of these things in chapter 1, he loses everything. And what is his response to that? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is within Christianity a kind of faith and a kind of confidence in the goodness of God that allows Christians to suffer loss and to remain doxological, to remain praising, to remain giving thanks to God. And we see that modeled here with Peter. He begins with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. These verses, verses 3 through 5, they are, it's, this is a jewel, okay? This is a jewel passage in all of the Bible. And there are lots of jewel passages, but this is certainly one of them because what Peter does here is he lays out the gospel. He goes from praising God and he says, now what do, what, why, why do we praise the Lord? What is there about what God has done for us that allows us to give praise to God even in the midst of persecution and suffering? And we see him now talking about salvation in this passage from the perspective of the past, what God has done, the present, what God is doing, and the future, what God is yet to do. And I want to hasten to say this. These truths that I'm talking about here, that Peter talks about, only apply to genuine Christians. This is not just a general truth for all of humanity. Let's all feel good about it. This is a truth that applies to people who have genuinely trusted in the Lord Jesus. And the promises that God has made to those that are his children apply then to us and are enumerated here by Peter. So if you're here and you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, what I hope happens today as we talk about the blessings that come to those that are under the grace of God, that it might woo you that it might draw you to put your hope and your faith in the Lord Jesus and for these promises then to become real and true for you. And that can happen in this service here today. Now, if you're an exile far from home, you are having to accept certain realities about life now. It's almost like a college student who goes away from home for the first time. And suddenly, uh, the reality of being responsible for yourself, doing your own laundry, and, and managing your own money, and all of the rest comes crashing down on the freshmen, and uh, some of them uh, flunk out as a result of that, right? They're in a faraway land. Everything's sort of strange. And indeed, to be one of these people that he's writing to, to live in a faraway land where everything feels creepy, and people look at you as creepy because you're different, created a whole set of problems and difficulties. Your homeland, that where you used to be, it felt safe. It felt normal. It felt secure. You had friends that made you feel like you were cared for. You had possessions that you had had for a long time. They felt normal to you. You had maybe a home. You had a network. You had all of these things that 
felt cozy and made you feel cared for. To be a person in exile is to live without these things, to live away from all of those identities and all of those securities. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed uh, our series graphic, but just uh, to put that up, if we have it a second, I really like this uh, because what is it? It's, It's a guy sitting on a pile of rubble and he's looking to a faraway place, right? And there's sort of this sense of, I wish I was there instead of where I am here. This feels like rubble where I'm at. I wish I was back where I came from. And that is a picture, not a bad one, of what it's like to be in exile. And what Peter wants them, and through this letter and through the Holy Spirit, wants us to realize here today is that what we have in Christ, even as an exile, is far greater and far better than anything we had prior uh, to coming to faith in Christ. I said that very clumsily. And clumsily is a clumsy word itself. Uh, Let me try that again. What Peter is wanting to say is that what we have presently as Christians, even as exiles, even on the pile of rubble, is far greater and far better than anything we had back when everything felt cozy, back prior to our faith in Christ. And he lays that out again in terms of past, present, future. So let's begin by looking at the past. And notice what he says here, wonderful verse, about being born again to a living hope. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we saw in verse 1 that their exile was by God's choice. We see here in verse 3 that their new birth is by the mercy of God. Born again. Born a what? What are you talking about? That sounds crazy. And that is exactly what Nicodemus said to Jesus when Jesus brought this up to him as well. In John chapter 3, you may know the story. Nicodemus, he's sort of a big-wig spiritual leader in, uh, in Israel. He comes to Jesus in the night, and he asks him about spiritual, he has spiritual questions for him. And he says, no one could be, no one uh, uh, except they're born from God could, could do what you do. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. You have to be born again. Nicodemus says, what? How can I be born again? I was born of my mother once. I got to be born of her twice. What are you talking about? And you see that Nicodemus is only looking at things materially. He is not seeing things spiritually, which is what Jesus wants him to see is there's a whole thing going on here spiritually. You have to be born again. What was Jesus talking about? The New Testament calls it new birth, calls it regeneration. All of these are biblical descriptions of what God does in the heart of the sinner who turns in faith and believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There is a miracle, a powerful, supernatural work that God does inwardly in the life of the sinner where, like being born again, He makes the sinner alive spiritually. Okay? Regeneration is the, is, is the, also the word there. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins, that spiritually we are, we're, we're corpses. 
What has to happen for a corpse to live again? It has to be regenerated. In a sense, it has to be resurrected. And what God does inwardly in our hearts by the Holy Spirit when we believe is He births life in us again. Almost like Jesus saying to Lazarus, come forth. There is a summoning and a giving of life that God does within us where all of a sudden now our eyes are opened, our ears are opened, and we become attuned to spiritual realities and spiritual things. And notice that it's God that does this. He has caused us to be born again. Regeneration is something that God does. We can't manufacture it. We can't uh, create it. We can't do enough things to make us think that now spiritually I'm alive. We are dead. Burns funeral homes across the street. You can go to every corpse there and try to manufacture life. It's not going to happen. Only God can manufacture life. And God does that within us. We are born again. We are passive in this. You ever hear a baby come out being born and go, wow, look what I did. I'm amazing. No, that mother birthed that child. Amen, mothers? You ain't going to ever forget that, are you? Babies don't take credit for being born. And Christians don't take credit for being born again. This is something God does. We are made spiritually alive, but the change affects our entire being. Second Corinthians says it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It is a miracle of life that permeates our entire being. Suddenly, it's like the switch is turned on. We become aware of spiritual truth. What? I never realized that before. We uh, become aware of the presence of God. We become aware of the presence of sin in our life. All of a sudden, we realize that we indeed are sinners. We become aware of forgiveness. We all of a sudden have an interest in Scripture, which prior to this, we would have thought is silly. No, what does it say, actually? I'm kind of interested in that. We become interested in prayer and a host of other things. All of them kind of just, it's like springtime. Push. Here come the leaves, here come the flowers. All of a sudden there is life. God does that. God does that. A few examples of how this is God's work and the change that it brings. I recently heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield, and maybe you've seen this online possibly, but uh, she was a uh, professor, um, a, a very, she's very upfront about her sexuality. She was a lesbian. Uh, she was a professor at Syracuse University. She was just totally into kind of that whole um, worldview. And it's a great story because there was just a normal local church that began to kind of care for her and love her. And she, in her own words, writes this about her her, uh, conversion. The church had been praying for me for years was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed 
that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. And now she's married to a Presbyterian minister. So come to Jesus and you get to marry a Presbyterian minister. I would keep most people away. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. We've talked at length about him and how God drew him to faith. He writes this about his conversion. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen College. Night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Who's causing this regeneration? Hear it in these words. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Christian, think about your own life story. Think about the change that has taken place in your life. Is there a natural explanation for the interest that you have in spiritual things? And the course and trajectory of your life. The fact that you're sitting here right now listening to some guy talk about what the Bible has to say. All of these things are things if we knew our natural selves, we would say, I would never do that. And that sounds crazy and that sounds stupid. Just like the people in Asia Minor looked at these Christians and said, what planet are you from? Why are you interested in that stuff? And maybe you have people in your family and friends that similarly look at you and go, you're living your life according to what? What planet are you from? We share the same mother, but you're an alien. I don't know you. How have you come to care about the things that you care about and to love God in the way that you love him and to desire to obey and please and live to his glory in the way that you do? Where did all of that come from? It didn't come from you. That can only come from God. He has birthed life in us. And we are changed. Born again to a living hope, the text says. Through the resurrection from the dead. Now why do you suppose he calls it a living hope? It is because our hope is in a living Savior. Do you see the parallel there? One writer says it this way. Christian hope is ever living because Christ, the ground of that hope, is ever living. So Peter looks back. He says, exiles, look back in your story and realize that this change has not come from you. God has given you life and he has given you hope. And that hope is a living hope because your savior is a living savior. And there we are looking in the past. Well, that's pretty fantastic, isn't it? Don't you think exiles might be a little encouraged by that? And maybe even Christians living here today might be a little bit encouraged to look back and to see the grace of God in our life. As the hymn writer wrote, Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We look to the past and we see God's grace to us. And it gives us, man, God is for me. God is with me. He has done this change in my life. The past, a living hope, a new birth. It is not simply a past, it is a present. And even right there is an interesting thought, which I don't have time to explore right now, but how important it is for us to realize that what God is doing is not just stuff in the past. Do you ever talk to people like that? 
Tell me about your spiritual life. Well, back in the past. And all they've got is like old stuff. And to realize that our faith, this thing that we're living, this Christian life, is a today thing. There is something that God is doing today. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. There is, there is a work that God is doing right now for you in your life. And Peter highlights it here. What are, we, what are we saved to? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Now, there's a lot there, okay? There's a lot there. But let's just walk through it. You're going to get this, and you're going to love it. We've been born again to an inheritance, okay? So most of us are probably familiar with the concept of an inheritance, What is an inheritance? An inheritance is something that you receive normally based on a relationship, typically a family relationship, right? So uh, when a person dies, there is a reading of the will. And if your name is in the will, it means that whether you knew it or not, you were an heir to the inheritance. So if you're in the will, you, you, you have an inheritance. Most people view that as good news, right? Okay. Uh, Now, what is true about an inheritance? Inheritances are very, very slippery. Very slippery. Your name can be on the will, but guess what? It can be removed from the will. You were an heir, but now you're not anymore. So you better be careful what you say at the family gathering about grandma. An inheritance can shrink in value. Did you know that? You could be an, you could be an heir to a, a, something that is incredibly valuable, but by the time you get it, it's not so valuable. So that your name is in the will, and they read the will, and your sister gets grandma's diamonds, and you get the Cabbage Patch collection. And you're like, my sister gets diamonds, and I get dolls, and, and you know, grandma puts in the notes when I bought these. They were really valuable. You're like, these aren't worth anything. This is like soft firewood. They can diminish in value. People can steal inheritances. There's a story or two in my own family tree of stolen inheritance. And maybe you got a few of those in your family tree. It's amazing what family gets like when money is on the table. Inheritance can can be stolen. Did you know that there are unscrupulous lawyers out there who... Now, there's really godly and fair-minded ones as well, but there are unscrupulous lawyers out there who can sometimes get their fingers in the pot and diminish an inheritance. Did you know that there are Steves? uh, Steves. (laughs) There are Steves. There are thieves that, and that has no connection whatsoever with Steve. There are thieves who can steal inheritances. They can steal grandma's jewelry instead of the dolls. Did you know that massive inheritances can be squandered? Some time ago, I got watching on the History Channel, had this series called The Men Who Build America. Maybe some of you saw it, but uh, we got into it for whatever reason. Tell the story of these uh, icons of industry in the past and... I got a little interested in the Vanderbilt family 
Some years ago, I, I got a tour of the, uh, the Biltmore, which is one of the descendants of... He built that with just an inheritance that he got. If you've ever seen that place, it's incredible. Um, but I got interested in the Vanderbilt family. And just to give you an idea very quickly about the Vanderbilt fortune, they at one time, at the height of their, of their power and value, they were worth over $300 billion in today's money. Now, $300 billion, to give you an idea, Bill Gates, who's currently the richest man in the world, is somewhere around $70 billion, okay? They had $300 billion. The world has hardly ever, if ever, seen, other than Rockefeller, a fortune like the Vanderbilt family fortune. In 1973, this is just 75 years from the height of their power and wealth, There was a gathering of 120 direct descendants of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And there wasn't one millionaire amongst them. 75 years. 300 billion to, you know, not so wealthy. How does that happen? Inheritance is going to be squandered. They can just simply disappear. And I say all of that because that connects with the world that we're in, right? Everything is kind of diminishing. Everything that once was cool is kind of getting old now. And that's the world that we live in, right? Our money isn't worth today what it was worth yesterday. There's inflation. There's the stock market. Everything's up and down and all around. But what about spiritually? The inheritance, the Bible describes the inheritance that we have. We are heirs with Christ. What is our inheritance like? And he uses some very powerful words to emphasize that our inheritance is not subject to all of the insecurities that everything in this world has. And he uses these words, notice them, imperishable. Okay? To perish is to die. Everything in this world dies right it's alive it dies the the flowers of the field the grass in the in the in the in the field all of it there and it dies and it withers and we're all withering right look around there's withering people all around you but this is an imperishable inheritance that he wants us to realize that we have undefiled and this speaks to the moral quality of our inheritance it is, it is pure. It is, it is good. We're, we're not, our inheritance doesn't come from unseemly business practices. There's nothing about it to make us feel sort of dirty in taking it or that there's something evil about it. It is holy. It is good. It is beautiful. It is pure. And it will be eternally beautiful and pure. Unfading. This is very similar to the perishing and the withering. It's, again, the, the human beauty and fame and everything that seems to be cool now. It's all going downhill. And young people don't realize that, but it is, right? It's all going down. Everything fades. And each one of these words is, it's perishable, defiled, and fading, only it has the negating ah in front of each one of those. It is not imperishable. I'm sorry, it's not perishable. It's not defiling. It is not fading. Our inheritance, you say, well, what is it then exactly? Number one, our inheritance is God himself. The number one thing that we look forward to in going to heaven is not seeing grandma, not seeing 
you know, whoever. Number one is God. We go to heaven and we get God and we see God and we have him forever. We are his children. He lavishes blessings on us for all of eternity, eternal life, heaven, new earth, rewards that Jesus will give to us for the quality of our service while here on earth, bliss, beauty, and most importantly, and I include this in the God category, is the seeing and the savoring of Jesus himself, our blessed Lord and Savior, who is our inheritance. You see, Christians talk about, oh, my mansion in heaven and all of that. Forget the mansion. Our mansion truly is Christ. And one day when we see him and we sense from him what eternal, pure, sacrificial, agape love is like, and he looks at us and we feel the love of the divine for us, the thought of a house or something else will just sort of fade away. This will be our greatest moment. It is that beatific vision that theologians talk about. And then to feel and to receive from him the lavishing of his grace and his love in material ways, even in the new earth, in the experience of what all of that is going to be like, and to realize that all of it is according to his mercy, that none of it we deserve, maybe with a vision of hell, and to realize that's what I deserve right there. And I'm getting this, how and why it is the mercy of God and his love for us. This is the inheritance. And Peter says, it never goes away. It never diminishes. It never somehow dies. It remains secure in the character and the promises of God. And it's going to be great. And you, my friend, if you are a Christian, you are an heir. An heir to the most wonderful fortune. The fortune of God. The spiritual blessing of being a child of God forever. The verse goes on, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. This inheritance that we have is located in heaven. Jesus describes it as a place where moth and rust do not decay and thieves don't break in and steal. That's a pretty good bank vault, isn't it? Anybody's bank here make that kind of guarantee? Probably not. Now notice there's a little shift here in the text because he's describing our inheritance that is kept in heaven. That's our inheritance. The next word, though, is who. See that? Who. So he moves from our inheritance to us. He moves from keeping our inheritance to God keeping us. Okay, so the inheritance is kept in heaven, but we are kept in earth. We are kept in faith on our time on earth. By God's power are being guarded through faith. And the word there, the Greek word for the word guarded there, it's the word garrisoned. Okay, so military people, this is like a word for you. This is the, the protection. This is the, uh, uh, in the ancient days, they would protect the city gates, the armament of the city gates. We are guarding the city walls, the walls of our faith. It also can refer to keeping us from escaping. Okay. So it's both. It is both the attacks from without and it is me fleeing from within. God is working in our faith, keeping us from both of those dangers. And here we have, and we can do a whole message on this, the, the doctrine of preservation. Okay, The doctrine of preservation, which says that 
God is the one who keeps us saved. We are preserved in our faith by the power of God. So notice the flow in the text. We are exiles by the choice of God. We are born again by the mercy of God. We are kept in our salvation by the power of God. Our faith is being guarded. And the tense of the verb there is ongoingly, continuously being guarded. It's, it's as if each one of us has a 24-hour, seven days a week security detail. Now, the closest thing I can think of to illustrate this would be what the President of the United States have, has, of course, which is the famous Secret Service. And uh, all of us probably are familiar with the Secret Service and what they do 24 hours a day, seven days a week to keep the President alive, to protect him. That is their job. And so for whatever reason, they've decided wearing dark suits and sunglasses helps with that. And so wherever the president is, there's these guys walking around near him and they've got dark suits on and they've got sunglasses. All of them look like they've lifted weights their entire life. You know, they're big, they're bad, they're tough. There's little bulges around in their suit. You know what's in there, right? They can uh, call upon what they need in a moment's notice to take care of business. And so they're there and they're talking into their hands and they got the little wires out of their ears and you know that there's satellites and there's, you know, who knows all the things that they've got going on wherever the president goes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, always keeping him safe. But as history shows, they can't even guarantee that, can they? Even the best of the best in the world today can't perfectly Protect the life of the president. Notice what Peter says here about us. Okay? Kept by the infinite power of God. It's almost like by the power of God, we each have our own spiritual secret service detachment. Everywhere we go, all the time, we are protected spiritually by the power of God. I got thinking about what this might be like. She's about to speak to Miss Gossip. Move in right now. (laughs) He's leaving on a business trip with Mr. Skeptic and Mrs. Temptation. All units code red. (laughs) He's in church right now. He's not listening. Tase him. (laughs) Did anybody just feel something, by the way? No? God's power is always at work protecting our faith, keeping us from running away from our commitment to Christ, keeping us from the wolves, keeping us from doctrine and beliefs and temptations that would ultimately undermine our faith commitment to Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't mean that we don't have seasons and all of that. But it does mean that even through those dark times, God is by his power protecting a faith that he has promised that he will carry on to completion, Philippians 1. And my dear Christian, that is true for you. Think of it just for a moment. Think of it. Right now, God's power is focused upon you and your faith and is ensuring that you are going to make it. 
that faith will not die. It's the power of God. It's like being born, right? We don't take credit for that, and I don't take credit for, for my faith continuing because naturally I am a sinner and I am human and I am wishy-washy. None of us would make it through this week left to ourselves. But we are not left to ourselves, not by God who loves us. We are kept in this faith. Past, we were born again in the present. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the future aspect of this is when our inheritance changes into a possession, okay? An heir is no longer an heir when the inheritance now is something that they own, right? Think of Prince Charles, like all these years waiting to become king, right? He's heir to the throne. There's probably a day coming when he will no longer be an heir. When? When he's actually king. And Buckingham Palace and the crown jewels and all the things, all of it is his then. No longer an heir, but a possessor. And our salvation is like that. We are already saved. We are already children of God. But the full experience of our salvation is yet to come. Someday, and the text here says, in the last time, referring to that future consummation of history. Someday, when Jesus returns and final judgment takes place, our ultimate inheritance will be ours. And our ultimate inheritance is Christ himself. And from that point on, we will see and know and worship him. From that point on, we will serve him fully and faithfully. From that point on, we will be in awe that the Holy Son of God that we see with our own eyes died for us, gave his life for us, and now showers his love upon us for all of eternity. And we will never get over that he did that. We will never get over the mercy of God to us. So that we can say that the Vanderbilts had their fortune by family right, and Prince Charles has his inheritance by birthright, we will have our inheritance forever by new birth and the mercy and the power of God. And so we get to that truth, and what can we say? How about we say what he says in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me, please?